Good afternoon. It's Friday the 7th of October 2022, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Uh, joining me by video link today, we've got Patrick Henningsen, Vanessa Belia and Ian Davis. Uh, so welcome all three. Uh, we're going to get straight on here with uh, the winter outlook for energy in the UK. This was hitting the headlines uh, yesterday, um, helping to inform the electricity industry and prepare for the winter ahead. Um, so let's see what they were saying. Two main scenarios they were uh, pushing out. Scenario one, reduced energy, uh, electricity imports from Europe. Uh, we expect to use coal contracts and our demand flexibility service to maintain adequate margins if imports from Europe are not available when we need. So what are they saying? Uh, basically, forget about all the uh, net zero stuff that you've been hearing about for goodness knows how many years now, because uh, we're going to switch on the coal power stations once again, if necessary. And then we've got scenario two, which is the one that was really hitting the headlines, uh, which is reduced electricity imports from Europe combined with insufficient gas supply in Great Britain. And they're saying in the unlikely event uh, we were in this situation, it would mean that some customers could be without power for predefined periods during a day. Uh, generally, this is assumed to be for three hour blocks. Now, here's the situation. Um, the UK has basically no gas storage. And because we're reliant on gas for electricity production, this is a pretty significant situation. So uh, Germany, for example, has two months worth of gas storage, but the UK has mainly nothing. And the reason for that is uh, that the uh, largest gas storage site, which I think was about 75% of the UK's gas storage, uh, was shut down. Uh, now, uh, Bloomberg was reporting this uh, a couple of months ago, a few weeks ago. Uh, Centrica moves closer to restarting UK's largest gas storage site for winter. Now, this is the rough facility, and uh, it's uh, obviously gas caverns and so on. But actually, when you look behind the headlines here, you find quite a bit from the energy press talking about how it's not really so, so simple as to just uh, reopen rough. So uh, here is uh, a, a blog post from What Logic here, uh, reopening rough. What are the prospects for gas storage uh, this winter? Um, there are two main questions associated with the planned reopening of Rough, says this particular post. Uh, as, number one, as there's no indication that any remedial works have been carried out to the wells, brackets, there's no mention of any such investments in any of the annual reports, uh, and cushion gas withdrawal has continued, can Rough be operated safely? And one of the reasons that Rough was shut down in the first place was because the wells themselves um, were no, no longer stable. Uh, and number two here, since the end of June, gas had continued to be extracted from rough. How much cushion gas must be re-injected before rough could achieve consistent withdrawal rates? So this is what they're talking about is the, uh, the, the amount of gas that's required to be uh, pushed into the system in order to maintain a, a pressure which allows for uh, gas to be taken back out again. Um, so the blog post goes on, given the apparent lack of investment in upgrading rough's wells, the investment, the extensive withdrawal of gas since closure I can suggest two theories for the prospective operations. Firstly, the expectation in the 1980s had been that compressors would be required in order to fully extract the remaining reserves. So let's think about this. Uh, what this person's saying is that we use electricity to extract the remaining gas that's still in rough in order to generate electricity. Okay, that seems logical. Uh, it's possible that such compressors have since been installed. Uh, given the amount of gas withdrawn exceeds the levels at, uh, at which such compression would be needed. Uh, this might reduce the cushion gas requirement. Secondly, uh, they could adopt the uh, mitigation measures described in the 
CMA report implementing safety protocols to be used in case of well failures. So um, then the question comes back to the two scenarios that were being presented in the winter outlook report. And does scenario two seem to be an unlikely event at all? Well, actually, it seems to be quite likely um, because, in fact, that we have no gas storage available and rough is not in, well, rough seems to be in a pretty rough uh, situation and not really in a position to provide a gas storage, uh, any kind of gas storage over this winter. Uh, but we don't need to worry uh, because uh, the UK government says they've got it all in hand because the UK has a secure and diverse energy system and we're not reliant on Russian gas. Um, so there we go. That's the potential situation for uh, the winter. And if we're looking at uh, power outages three hours in duration, well, that, as I've mentioned before, reminds me very much of the situation that Vanessa's in in, uh, in Damascus. So, uh, Vanessa, welcome to the programme. Um, just give us an idea of the kind of life uh, that people in Syria have with energy rationing at the moment. Well, I mean, I'm relatively well off here. We have now, it was four off, two on. It's just gone to um, four and a half off, one and a half on, and we're expecting a relatively um, hard winter while Syria is actually repairing the, the, the entire electrical infrastructure um, that was damaged through the 10 years of war and, and the sanctions not enabling spare parts to come in, etc., etc. Um, you know, if you're talking three-hour outages, I mean, to be honest, um, you do adapt to it. Um, you just learn to structure your day around the hours of electricity. You do become a bit obsessive, I, I have to say that. Um, and you lose um, things that, that you never realized before are quite essential, particularly to the Syrians. Um, fridges in hot summers, and our summers go from March until November um, with temperatures of 30 degrees even now. Um, so for us, that that's a major um, hit, particularly on 90% of the population that is below any kind of poverty line. Um, so yeah, people just have to prepare. Um, I don't think the outages are going to reach the levels of Syria. No. Not yet. Um, but I do think people just have to prepare. I mean, probably the outages, I'm guessing, will be at hours that are you know, not necessarily going to be massively inconvenient for people. I would hope, but, you know, we don't know. But st just start planning to structure, um, maybe bring in alternative um, um, chargers like inverters, batteries. And I wouldn't recommend solar in the UK, sorry. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Especially coming into, into winter. Yes, um, indeed. But there, there are other methods of maintaining the electricity supply yeah can. okay thank you for that uh, so patrick if uh, if germany's in a much better position in, than the uk uh, with uh, two months of uh, gas storage available to them uh, it's not all a bed of roses though no it's not i just want to make a, a quick uh, addendum to what uh, vanessa said in, in countries like syria and lebanon uh, if you do have rolling blackouts or uh, electricity and power cuts and that becomes policy or that becomes a regular uh, thing, then that's going to uh, open up the market for diesel generators. So there's going to be huge demand, A, for generators of different capacities and also diesel fuel. Uh, 
And because certain businesses need to run, uh, there's lots of essential power features that just need to run. It's not just your appliances and your laptops and your televisions and, and things like that in the home. Um, there's infrastructural things uh, regarding buildings and things like that. They need a viable alternative power source. So that's just going to uh, open up a demand for diesel fuel um, and things like this that can actually do the job. Uh, in Germany, uh, they, they had their first test uh, regarding this uh, national drive to save energy, and it was a huge failure. Uh, German households and small businesses raised their natural gas consumption by 14.5% above the five-year average uh, in the uh, final week, or roughly the final week of September, uh, according to Germany's energy regulator, the Federal Network Agency. So this was the big push. We need to conserve. You know, we need to save the grid. Like they're saying in California, the same thing. And consumption is way up. So it's a total fail. They can't get people to change their behavior. They can't get people to stop doing essential things. It's not like people are being extravagant. It's just that consumption's up and it's going to raise even more during the winter. So things are not looking good for this all. Let's get on board green push and uh, uh, let's you know shun uh, Putin's energy and so forth. Big problems here for Germany. Okay, and what about OPEC? Okay, this is right now one of the bigger pre-election stories uh, in the United States. So OPEC plus one, OPEC and allies, Russia's included in that. Uh, they were there's a lot of pressure by the White House before the midterms to uh, increase production because the, uh, the, right now the pump, the price of the pump is I'm in California right now. It's it's nearly seven dollars. It's like six eighty seven dollars a gallon. This is a nightmare. Uh, for the Democrats going into the midterm elections. So basically, the Arab countries, and the, ma the main OPEC uh, leading countries, Saudi Arabia at the forefront, uh, basically said, no, uh, we're going to decrease uh, production. So what's going on here? I think this is might be a little bit of, uh, well, it's pragmatic from the oil producer's point of view. Um, they have to guard their future uh, earnings and profits and viability in this Green New Deal, uh, aggressive Green New Deal environment. But it's kind of a big middle finger to the Biden administration. You remember when Joe Biden was uh, gallivanting around, uh, basically telling MBS he killed Jamal Khashoggi. And that was the big sort of issue of the day a couple of years ago. And now they're sort of getting theirs back. Biden went to beg uh, for production a couple of months ago, came back empty handed. So the, the accusations are, uh, from the Democrats, that the Russians are behind this, that Putin is colluding with the Saudis uh, to peg the price of oil at $100 a barrel or something around there. Uh, so this this came up, and Reuters has been pushing this story, this this talking point, and this came up during a press conference with OPEC. And here is the Saudi energy minister uh, basically rebuking Reuters. Now, uh, I'm not a big fan of the Saudi Arabian regime, but it is telling now when you have, you know, Saudi ministers that you normally sort of cordial and polite are basically attacking the press in the sort of Donald Trump fashion or Ron DeSantis fashion. But we'll, we have a clip of this. Let's let's have a look. I have to talk to you about. So you have got it wrong. Okay. <laughs> and you have got it wrong twice. Before I ask a question, I'll and you will get it three the third time if you, you know, you. Did, uh, as Reuters did not do a proper job. 
you talked about Russia doing this and that. And actually, the day that your story came out, no one from Russia talked to me, nor I talked to anybody from Russia. You repeated that again with another tale of a story prior to that, that Saudi and Russia, blah, 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 are congregating around $100 price. That is not true. We, and I spent 20 minutes from one of your respected mem uh, members of uh, your peer in Dubai, explaining to her, or actually 25 minutes, why we don't go as Saudi Arabia for price targeting. And that 25 minutes went in vain, and I really don't like that. I acted in a very respectful way, emanating from respecting the agency, and I think, but you elected, you elected to choose a phantom Saudi source, saucy source, if I can do it as British as I could. <laughs> but if you have question, direct it to others, but not me. I'm not talking to Reuters until you respect the source, which is the energy minister on behalf of the Saudi government. Okay, thank you. I won't ask So you ask the questions to any of my colleagues. Yeah, that, that's quite an incredible uh, situation, Patrick, where uh, Reuters is being told off uh, in this way. It's unheard of, as far as I'm aware. Uh, I, I, there's clearly been quite a bit of pushback on the BBC, but Reuters is supposed to be even more uh, sort of down the middle than, than even the BBC. Well, you know, it's, they've stepped over the line, you know, because they're getting, they're, they're politicizing a lot of things that um, shouldn't be really politicized this much. And they're being called out by the Saudis. I mean, this is a weird world we're living in when the Saudis are coming out. It's like Donald Trump did a walk-in into the yeah. body of the Saudi energy minister and just tearing him apart like a CNN reporter. Um, so, it, But it shows you that they're not basically having it. This, th this is a direct reaction to the aggressive Green New Deal policies and sort of Joe Biden's leading the charge. We need to end fossil fuels by you know, 2035 or consumption or whatever, these people in these other countries that rely on hydrocarbons, um, they're not taking it, you know, so they, they need to think about their future, their economies, their populations, not this crazy utopian, uh, you know, green sort of vision of uh, a carbon uh, free uh, world or whatever. It's just not practical. And now the, the penny's really dropping in America on this as well. This will become a bigger and bigger issue going forward. It's definitely in this midterms and straight through to the 2024 presidential election. Yeah, brilliant. Thank you. Uh, okay, let's move on then. And uh, well, the nuclear war drums continue uh, to be beaten. Uh, so let's uh, put this on screen. Uh, and uh, the usual suspects uh, of uh, Zelensky and Biden, at least uh, on screen at the moment. Before I uh, let you loose on this, Patrick, I just wanted to put uh, what Zelensky actually said uh, on screen. So he was speaking to the Lowy Institute yesterday, and I've uh, grabbed this from, uh, from news.com.au. Uh, so what he actually said was, but what is important, I once again appeal to the international community, as I did before February the 24th, we need preemptive strikes uh, so that they'll know what will happen to them if they use nukes and not the other way around. Don't wait for Russia's nuclear strikes and then say, oh, since you did this, take that from us. Uh, reconsider the way you apply pressure. This is what NATO should do. Reconsider the order in which it applies pressure, uh, meaning on Russia. Uh, and uh, Patrick, uh, uh, of course, uh, 
um, the Russians uh, had quite a bit to say on this. Um, and uh, uh, it's quite an incredible situation that we're seeing this kind of language. We should say that, that the, uh, the Zelensky regime has denied that what he meant was preemptive nuclear strikes. Um, but I, I'm not buying that story because it was pretty clear in the context of the entire speech what he was talking about. Sure, sure. Why, why should anybody listen to uh, Zelensky uh, giving advice uh, how to conduct uh, major uh, thermonuclear conflagrations? It's just ridiculous. Um, this guy was a comedian on television just a couple of years ago, and now he's the sort of global leader uh, avatar. Uh, for for NATO in the West, so there's been all these nuclear threats that have been levied back and forth, or supposed threats. And so uh, this this all started with the West saying, "Oh, Putin's uh, threatening nuclear to use nuclear uh, weapons against West." And, and if you look at the text of Putin's uh, comments on that, it's always been, "Look, if if things are escalating to a level where they're attacking Russia, the homeland, um, we're prepared to go all the way." That sort of thing, and that became. The nuclear threat uh, from the Western point of view. And so Biden has also weighed in on this. And he's saying, here, this is this is Medusa. This is the Russian quote opposition media. Zelensky calls on NATO to launch preemptive strikes. So they're tra translating in the addendum to that Biden warns of a nuclear Armageddon, as Zelensky calls preemptive strikes on Russia. So the, the, the nuclear term and the, the language is just going fast and loose with just everybody in the press. And what's really fueling this, and the real thing you gotta look out for here, <clears throat> is what the this comment from Zelensky is really echoing what you're seeing right across all US media on all major networks, CNN, Fox, Washington Post, uh, New York Times, all of them are parroting the same talking point. And that's that if Putin is backed into a corner, he will use tactical nukes. This is spoken of as if it's some kind of fait accompli here in, in Western circles. And th they keep repeating it. This is basically on the list of, of prescribed talking points for all U.S. politicians and all mainstream media. They just keep repeating it and repeating and repeating it. It doesn't make any practical sense that in, when Russia's winning in a, con a conventional war on their own borders, that they would somehow if they thought they were losing a conventional war, lash out and use a tactical nuclear weapon right by their own uh, borders. Ridiculous. And the way that the conflict is being fought, and you look at the way the clusters of various battalions, it's ridiculous. It's not going to make any, they say, no, he's going to make a big, strong statement. And Putin will do this because if he's a cornered rat, this is the sort of stuff you hear every, every day in the US media. This is very dangerous because what, what, what it looks like is very dangerous right now. The danger of a false flag by the West, I think, is highly probable, more so than any other time Street, a nuclear false flag. If anything goes off, a dirty bomb, uh, some kind of a tactical device, it will immediately be blamed by the global media on Russia. It will be, okay? There won't be any investigations. You've seen how it goes down with the chemical weapons, uh, so-called chemical weapons attacks in Syria. Same thing is gonna happen here. That's why this rhetoric, A, it doesn't make any sense. B, it's hugely dangerous because it looks like they're setting up a narrative here. The West will throw its toys out of the pram. NATO will throw its toys out of the pram because Ukraine's just lost 33% roughly of its territory 
and they're n- probably not going to get it back, save some crazy escalation. And where's that going to come from? Not from Russia, I'm afraid. So I'm just putting that out there as a, as a danger right now. Yeah, okay. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, Ian, welcome to the program. You got some thoughts on this? Uh, no, actually, I was just going to echo what Pat said, that he preempted me. Yeah, I mean, okay. I, I think that's something that Professor Richard Vernon was talking about yesterday, that the, the narrative for the false flag always precedes the false flag. So, yeah, absolutely, we need to be aware of that. Okay, thank you for that. Okay, Vanessa, uh, let's move on to a story that is doing the rounds uh, in alternative media, especially, I think, uh, and that's the question of whether Russia is vaccinating uh, its military. Yeah, yeah, there's a fair amount of controversy going on here. Um, and I know that uh, Riley Wagaman has just responded to Thomas Roper that I'm citing from in my report. But I also want to make clear that the people that I spoke to inside Russia when I was there were also not aware of this mandatory vaccination for reservists that are being called up, not civilians as they're being described. So this guy is uh, on Telegram uh, channel. He's quite amusing, but very informative, Ossie Cossack. Um, He's a Sydney media personality, Simeon Boykov. And this was his video that he put out, I think, yesterday. Apologies for the slightly colorful uh, Aussie language in it. It's not that bad. (laughs) Guys, share this video very quick. Putin is not doing mandatory injections for his military. That's just a fake to try and convince the anti-vaxxers to go against Russia. Beware of the mainstream media, fake news, lefty woke bullshit tactics. I'm in contact with troops, with soldiers, with military priests, with officers. There's no mandatory vaccination when they're in the army. You think Russia really cares about mandatory vax at the moment? They're, they're doing work, they're doing bizzo. You know, it's kicked off over there. So that's just fake news bullshit, you know? Aussie Cossack, subscribe Telegram for more. I can't put this on YouTube, so I've said it here on Telegram. Okay, so um, as I said, um, the alternative media is putting out this story that Russia begins vaccinating mobilized citizens. That's a little bit mis- misleading in that title, and actually it's echoing some of the misrepresentation in Western media, unfortunately, because it's giving the impression that ordinary citizens are um, immediately being mobilized. That's not entirely true. It's reservists, um, citizens who were previously in the armed forces who are now being pulled back up, which is fairly standard practice when there's any escalation um, in any country um, that, that is that where there is potential for um, war or increased conflict. Now, um, Thomas Roper, who's um, also based in Russia, speaks um, fluent Russian, um, was among the observers of the referendum in Donbass, um, has a blog called Anti-Spiegel, where fairly obviously he pushes back against uh, German mainstream media narratives, particularly on Russia. This was an interview with Eva Bartlett at her WordPress site uh, in Gaza. So people can go and listen to it there or at Eva Bartlett's uh, YouTube channel. So I'm just um, taking from Thomas Roper's, it's translated, I'm guessing, from German. Um, So what he's basically saying, the alternative media are haunted by reports that the soldiers who were forcibly recruited in Russia are also being given compulsory vaccinations. However, this is a hoax. 
In Russia, as in almost every country, there is a legal basis as to whether and under what circumstances which vaccinations are mandatory. Vaccinations, he says, against COVID-19 are not included, but there are exceptions. Now, I would say this, this sort of confusion over whether vaccinations were mandatory was also seen in Syria for a relatively short time because the uptake of vaccinations was um, drastically low here, less than 6%. So there was a period of time, I think about three or four weeks, where health officials here were themselves pushing through coercive tactics which weren't necessarily recognized by the central government. And actually, I came up against this. And when I questioned it, I was told comprehensively by people within the central government that no, they weren't coercing, coercing people into having vaccinations. And yet, at the, at the local government level, people were feeling that they were being coerced into it. So just that's my experience here. Um, and he says, for example, at least to the best of his knowledge, compulsory vaccination for doctors working in hospitals. Everything is different in Russia now. I would agree with that. The week that I was there, I didn't see um, any COVID measures in place at all. Some of the staff in the hotel where I was staying were wearing masks, but most of them actually had them pulled down. There's no PCR requirement or vaccine requirement to enter Russia. And I'm pretty sure there was never a vaccine requirement to enter Russia. I could be wrong, but I had inquired about it at various times that I was thinking. Um, of going there. While politicians in the West are preparing for the next COVID winter with media attention, all COVID measures have been abolished in Russia and the pandemic is no longer an issue. Again, I agree with that. Everyone I spoke to uh, was not even thinking about it. Um, there was no social distancing. As I said, there were no measures in place. Most people I spoke to um, told me that they... Um, they had not been forced into, into doing anything. Obviously, I didn't talk to millions of people. I spoke to the interpreters. I spoke to people that had organized the trip. I spoke to bus drivers, etc. cetera. Um, and that just came up in general conversation. In Moscow, even all fines imposed because of COVID have been returned. COVID is no longer an issue in Russia. Um, he's already reported that the handling of COVID-19 in Russia was very different from that in the West. In Russia, 200,000 additional hospital beds were set up in exhibition centers, for example, and there were only relatively moderate corona measures that were not implemented too strictly in practice. Stricter measures were only limited in the time and region if the health system came under pressure in a particular Russian region despite the additional beds. However, the measures were always withdrawn after a short time. Again, that's very similar to the reaction in Syria we saw a sort of uptick in a reaction and then an almost immediate withdrawal of it. These sources, and he's talking about the sources in the Riley Wagerman original article, are regional Russian portals. And that's actually confirmed by Riley's follow-up article that's available for people to go and read, where he says the information, uh, or rather the mandatory vaccination, um, is being talked about in three regions. And that's confirmed by Roper's comments. Um, <clears throat> he talks about the Rostov, Tatarstan, and Pensa regions. And as he says, that alone should make you suspicious because Russia now consists of 89 regions and either there is compulsory vaccination ordered by the Russian military soldiers, which would then apply nationwide, or there isn't. 
Um, he goes on to say, I have a direct line to the press office of the Russian Ministry of Defense due to his press tours in the Donbass. And he asked there about the German media reports without further ado. The answer was clear. These are Russian citizens and vaccinations are voluntary in our country. Now, I know that Riley has followed up with another article, as I say, citing other um, media reports and also having one of them having called a helpline, I think, with the Ministry of Defense that confirmed that vaccinations will be recommended. <coughs> but I also have to say that I myself spoke to contacts within the Ministry of Defense and the MFA this morning, and they confirmed again um, that as far as they're concerned, the vaccinations are not mandatory for the armed forces. The priority is to get the forces to the front, trained and to the front lines. Um, Thomas Roper then goes on to say, I'll, I'll, in Russia, there's an old proverb that is still relevant today. It says Moscow is far away. And that means that in Russia, it can happen from time to time that regional officials think that they can interpret rules differently than Moscow. Uh, I think that's a bad translation. So I like to think that as quoted in Russian portals, some regional representatives of the health authorities are saying that they would like to compulsorily vaccinate the mobilized soldiers but the Russian Ministry of Defense sees it differently. Hopefully in the next few days, there might be some clarification publicly from um, the Ministry of Defense that's coming from myself. It is therefore more than questionable whether these announcements will be followed by any action in individual Russian regions, because it is unlikely that the employees of the regional health authorities will even come to the barracks, another fairly good point. In conclusion, we can state that there are no instructions in Russia to compulsorily vaccinate all mobilized um, soldiers. He makes it clear it's soldiers reservists. I can't rule out the possibility that some overzealous officials in some Russian regions might try it anyway. So I think the controversy will continue because as I said, Riley has responded. But from my experience, not reading, I mean, I don't read Russian. Um, I haven't had time to check <coughs> all of Riley's sources. Um, but there does seem to be some contradiction there. Okay, thank you, uh, Ian. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I would, I, I agree with much of what um, uh, Vanessa said. I mean, obviously, Russia's like, a, you know, it's, it's similar to the United States in many sense. You've got these eighty-nine different oblasts that have all got their kind of independent regional governments, and they're all kind of um, have their different interpretations of things. But I think there's probably, it seems to me, that there might be some confusion in going on at the moment in terms of what's what's happening between the political statements and what's maybe happening on the ground and i think we can see the same thing in the uk when during the during the, the summer of 2021 the government were making loud noises about forcing people to to be vaccinated and so forth but speaking yesterday on um sputnik on sputnik radio um state duma deputy leader um fedo tumsov said quote as far as I know, the decree on vaccination against COVID-19 among the troops is still in effect. It is necessary to vaccinate and revaccinate those who were mobilised and the rest of the military. I mean, that's similar to what you know that that, that we we've heard in the in the West in terms of you know our own defence minister saying that all, all military personnel need to be vaccinated. And I think the question in Russia. They've been. They've certainly been pushing out the the the, the, the vaccine um, ideology. I suppose you could say, as they as they have in the West, but it's whether or not 
you know, the public have, have gone along with that. And I think increasingly we can see now in the West that we can start asking questions about the extent to which the public have actually gone along with vaccination in the UK as well. Yeah. But certainly TAS were reporting in the summer of 2021 that people like the Moscow mayor, um, Sergei Soy Soybean, was, was saying that 60% to 60, between 60% and 80% of the population in certain industries needed to be vaccinated. Um, so it's the, it's the I, I would suggest it's the narrative that they are pushing forward. It's very much the same as the narrative that, that they've been pushing forward in the, in the West. But it's just whether or not, you know, people will, will respond to it. And I, and I think that if you look at the statistics of, of uptake in Russia, into a, of Sputnik V and things like that, then it's, it's notably not as high as claimed in the West. But I, I think latterly we might start looking at, for example, the total collapse of the bivalent rollout in the US. I think there's reason to question just how successful, you know, these, these figures are. Okay, thank you. And uh, Patrick, let's move on then to uh, the mail here and uh, headline, well, they're claiming it as an exclusive. Ukrainians take revenge. This is a this is an interesting story, Mike. And it's very disturbing. Um, you're, you're starting to see a level of unhinged, almost uh, fanatical propaganda coming out of some of these papers. And you know, we've seen different kinds of propaganda. You know, the jingoism, <clears throat> promoting the wars, and so forth. This is this is something else. Uh, this is reaching a kind of new level. They're kind of inter. Uh, interceding here into a, a civil war and taking very, very partisan rhetoric and kind of almost um, making it inflammatory. And look at what it says. This is this is the, the splash page of the mail yesterday and this morning. We're hunting them down and shooting them like pigs. How Ukrainians are taking brutal revenge against dozens of collaborators who have betrayed their neighbors and country to the Russians. So they're, they're using the term collaborator, uh, traitor, um, using it in a kind of pedestrian way. Um, let's take a closer uh, headline up so people can see that. Um, and then over here, this is the article itself. And, you know, the, the bullet points here are, we'll scroll down this article. I mean, take a look at this thing. So it's, they're, they're, they're basically highlighting and featuring a couple of uh, local uh, people in these regions uh, where Russia has retreated and making them s sort of an example out of them. These are people, this gentleman here, I'll show you him in a minute. Um, he died in a car bomb. Uh, so they're, they're basically promoting terrorist attacks and reprisals uh, by, quote, resistance fighters uh, against local people who they deem to be collaborators. Now, this is all done very extrajudiciously, okay? So Ukraine's opened up all these cases of 1,300-something suspects, 450 prosecutions. I mean, that number is just going to get bigger and bigger. Um, but uh, that, that's basically the gist of this. And go on to the next uh, image here. And uh, here's uh, one of the gentlemen here. Uh, recent fatalities include Ivan uh, Shushko, a wedding toastmaster, according to them, uh, appointed mayor of a town in the Zaporizhia region who died in August after his car was blown up. So the male's kind of glorifying this as a valiant act 
of reprisal by the brave Ukrainian uh, resistance, or this could be the Azov Battalion, who knows? They're being very, uh, very, a little bit vague on, on who the actual perpetrators are. And so I looked at this, and uh, we'll go back here. I looked at this, and I thought, well, who's the, who's the author of this? And I saw the name Ian Burrell. And I thought to myself, hmm, that name looks really familiar. Who is this uh, Ian Burrell? And, you know, just remember a couple of years ago. So this is a hired gun. This is a hired gun by the British establishment to come in. And he's an expert on, on sort of uh, hamming up massacres and torture. So how, what else? What, what's his past? Oh, yeah, that's right. 2017. He's the brains behind the, quote, Assad files. And if you want to see a great piece of fantasy fiction, um, look no further than this story. And this got top billing. He won. He he chalked up a couple more journalism awards uh, for this. There he is, standing very pensive with the arms crossed in a secret location somewhere in Central Europe, with eight hundred thousand documents smuggled out of Syria, uh, with threats of the life of the people, brave people smuggling them out. And this all supposedly documents Assad torture. Okay. And the Central European secret location, I'm guessing now it probably was Ukraine. But uh, anyway, we'll get more on that later. But that's Ian Burrell. So he's a hired gun uh, for the establishment. And if you want to look at uh, the details of that in, in fine detail, you go here to uh, monitor on massacre marketing. This is uh, Adam Larson, I think, uh, Petri Krohn, a couple of great uh, activist bloggers uh, that did a lot of great work on Syria. Um, you'll see the details of the, quote, Assad files uh, here. They just kind of rev it up. Uh, they did every every few months uh, with, with the Syrian conflict. So that's that's the guy behind this story. So this is absolute 100% propaganda. Now, take a look at this. This is what was in the mail. You have to read it to believe it, basically. This is what it's saying. Uh, Kiev has already opened 1,309 suspected tr investigations into suspected traitors. Uh, and launched 450 prosecutions of collaborators, there's two words there, uh, accused of betraying their own nation and neighbors. Uh, others are being tracked down and slaughtered by resistance fighters. Again, glorified in the Daily Mail. And uh, a list was passed to this newspaper by a Kiev government source, anonymous source, uh, identifying 29 such retribution killings, extrajudicious assassinations, etc. 13 assassinations. And here's the bottom bit, which I think is quite telling. Uh, a hunt has been declared on collaborators, and their life is not protected by the law, said Anton uh, Gurashenko, an advisor to Zelensky's uh, interior minister. Our intelligence services are eliminating them, shooting them like pigs. So he's, he's admitting there that this is being done outside of the law. So you see the gaslighting here by the mail and Ian Burrell, the professional propagandist, it's all about the mass torture that Russians are doing these torture programs in basements in these new liberated areas, these villages that uh, around Kharkiv that Ukraine has recently liberated, so to speak. And they're saying, oh, all these torture programs and mock assassinations by the Russians, how cruel they are. And at the same time, in the same article, they're basically green lighting just willy-nilly going and, and doing retribution killings uh, and uh, hunting and shooting people like pigs. So this is an incredible, I mean, this is like next level propaganda. And for this to be done in a British daily newspaper and nobody's battening an eyelid about it, 
I mean, every mainstream media outlet should be pulling this up and saying, you guys, you guys are kind of beyond the pale here. And Ian Burrell will probably win a a journalism award for this, too. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised. But I don't know. Does anybody have any thoughts on this? Because I I find this to be just completely out of bounds. But then again, I'm just one man with one opinion. Vanessa. Yeah, I mean, I I put this out on Twitter yesterday. I mean, it's an absolutely appalling, abhorrent normalization of Nazism. Um, But we're also seeing it across the board. We're seeing the Sun newspaper literally advocating wanted posters for Putin and lobbying for his assassination. We're seeing images in the New York Times of Azov battalion fighters hugging their wives. So this humanization of people that are not human and haven't been human, um, you know, since they conducted an ethnic cleansing program against the eastern Ukrainians. Um, in Donbass that have now just made the decision to accede to to Russia. And also not forgetting the um, Azov Battalion photographer, who very much like the Noral Danzinki member, the terrorist group funded by the United States, who beheaded the child in Aleppo in August to, uh, July 2016. Um, <clears throat> Um, being given the Getty Award for photography. Now we're seeing the Azov Battalion photographer also given the Getty Award for his photojournalism in the Azov style um, um, plant in um, Mariupol. So, yeah, you know, what we're seeing is a continuation of what we saw in Syria, which was the normalization of terrorism. Now we're seeing the really terrifying for me normalization of Nazism and fascism. Um, Ian. Yeah, and it's a nexus, isn't it, between the the media and the political class as well, because you've got people like Lindsey Graham openly calling for the assassination of a foreign leader, you know, Putin in this case. So you you that there is this the the othering of other people is a two way street for these for these people. They they are quite happy to exploit it if it suits their ends, but are quite equally, um, you know, willing to complain about it if it's if it doesn't suit their objectives. So it's just pure Machiavellian, nasty p- politics, and it's it's going to go beyond. I suggest it's going to go beyond the other ring of a of a of a people, as as we've seen with with uh, in, in you know in in the terms of calling Russians orcs or perhaps, you know, Putin calling us Anglo-Saxons and speaking about the world in that sense. This othering is this othering is happening everywhere and it's being directed towards people, for example, who are just questioning things like vaccines, who are now being called refuseniks and baby killers. And this this is a trend that is happening globally and it, and it is very, very worrying. Uh, it is indeed. Uh, okay, Patrick, but uh, the question then One is... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. One final comment. Just just quickly, I just want to put this idea out. Imagine how this looks to uh, Ukrainian uh, you know, neo-Nazis or Azov battalions who are hunting down Russian-speaking people uh, in some of these areas. What, what do they think? They're, they see the British establishment basically giving them a green light to go and just start slaughtering people. I mean, is there any other way that you can read this? I, this mail article just screams of that. So they're, 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 they've got the endorsement of the British establishment and the Western media. They're just going to go ahead and keep doing what they're doing in, in the most uh, violent way. 
It's really disgusting. Where, where are the questions in Parliament on this? This is just crazy. Uh, indeed. Uh, but calls for uh, regime change, in this case, Putin must go, uh, continue? Well, there's, yeah, the world's most dangerous walrus has uh, reared his ugly head. Look at the byline on this. That's John Bolton basically saying Putin must go. Now's the time for regime change. He was taking Biden's offhanded comments a couple of months ago. You remember when Biden said, uh, you know, we need to, t this guy needs to be taken out. For God's sake, we need he needs to go. That was the rallying cry for Bolton. Look, John Bolton's been relegated to writing for 1945.org or whatever. I mean, this is just like a low-grade kind of cutout blog uh, here for propaganda. Go to his Twitter feed here. My latest article, the headline is clear. <laughs> He's touting his own headline. Putin must go. Now is the time to, for regime change in Russia. Uh, there is no long-term prospect for achieving America's critical long-standing goals of peace and security in Europe without regime change in Russia. He's saying not just Putin. He's saying any loyalists or anybody affiliated with Putin. I mean, it's just kind of fantasy, but this is what's passing now as kind of legitimate political analysis from some of the more strident war hawks and the chicken hawks like Lindsey Graham, John Bolton. I just want to show, this is his Twitter feed. If anyone hasn't seen this before, I mean, uh, uh, an exhibition in vanity. That's <laughs> no one's ever seen a Twitter profile like this before. This is John Bolton, and you have to question... Uh, where this guy's um, head is. But uh, funny enough, John Bolton was on Piers Morgan's Uncensored. I think that's the name of his program. And he was opposite uh, Stella Assange. Um, I don't know if you have that clip uh, to hand or not. Uh, yeah, well, we'll come to that in a second. Let's just, uh, let's just uh, mention if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, then please uh, head over to community.ukcolumn.org uh, or you could pick something up from the UK column shop. Uh, but please uh, do share any of the material you find on the various platforms. So yes, Patrick, let's come on to the uh, issue of Stella uh, Assange and the uh, and the video. Just introduce this for us. Yeah, this is on Piers Morgan's program. They had Stella, so do credit to the program, they had her on as an in-studio guest, and they had John Bolton being beamed in. So this is Stella Assange versus John Bolton, and it's a very interesting and uh, incredible exchange. Let's let's watch this. He's committed clear criminal activity. He's no more a journalist uh, than the chair I'm sitting on. Uh, the information that he divulged uh, did, in fact, put many people in jeopardy. Uh, it undercut the ability of the United States to have confidential diplomatic communications, not just with other foreign governments, but in many countries with dissidents, people who even speaking to American diplomats could find themselves in trouble. Uh, and so, you know, he, uh, he's been complaining about his treatment uh, over the past period of time. He's the one who sought asylum in the Ecuadorian embassy. Uh, now he faces extradition to the United States. I, I presume he will get due process in the United Kingdom to determine whether extradition should go forward. And when he gets to the United States, he'll get due process here. And I hope he gets at least 176 years in jail for what he did. Stella? Well, of course, uh, Ambassador Bolton is kind of the ideological nemesis of Julian. He has, uh, during his time for the Bush administration and later the Trump administration, um, sought to undermine the international legal system, ensure that the U.S. is not under the International Criminal Court's jurisdiction. And if it was, uh, Mr. Bolton might uh, 
in fact uh, be prosecuted under the ICC. Uh, he was one of the chief cheerleaders of the Iraq war, which Julian then exposed through these leaks. So um, he has a conflict of interest here. Okay, so that's pretty clear. Uh, any final thoughts on that, Patrick? I think I think she was being a little light on Bolton, actually. Um, and by the way, Julian is not getting due process uh, in the UK. It's a total political trial. The US government's directly involved. They're harassing the legal team. All of this stuff, the surveillance against the legal team uh, and Assange himself, that it's a political uh, prosecution. So the US and the UK extradition treaty is very explicit on this regard um, that political prisoners can't be, uh, or for political reasons, can't be extradited to the US. It's totally political, plus all the US senators and Mike Pompeo with the assassination plot and all this stuff. So it should have been thrown out a long time ago. But the UK is doing their sort of dutiful, sort of playing that poodle role by keeping him on ice uh, for Uncle Sam to such a time when they can extradite him to save face for an embarrassing exposure of what WikiLeaks did exposing the U.S. Uh, 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 exploits in, in Iraq. Um, and I might add as well that uh, uh, P Piers Morgan was being somewhat uh, objective, I guess, neutral uh, in this. But, you know, at least at least the, the producers for the show got both of them on at the same time. And it's such a rarity that you'll ever see that in anything like approaching a mainstream, so-called mainstream outlet. So in a way it was good to see, but you know, this, this guy, his, his life is absolutely in jeopardy right now in yes. Belmarsh prison. So this is a really you know, worrying and uh, bad situation all around. Okay, well, we'll just, uh, thanks for that, Patrick. We'll just remind everybody that uh, the Assange Free Assange Human Chain event is taking place uh, tomorrow, 1 p.m. Uh, there is a train strike happening, uh, so that could be problematic. But nonetheless, plenty of people in London that could be taking part in that, even if uh, uh, I'm sure there are bus buses coming down as well. Uh, but do get to that if you possibly can. Um, now, uh, let's move on. Uh, and Ian, let's bring you onto the program and introduce the term accelerationism. Um, how, did you, how did you come across this term? You told me. Ah. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it was. I didn't know anything about it. I'd never, I'd never heard it. It never come across my radar before. I think subsequently, I've discovered that Alex has got some background knowledge about it. Of course, because Alex is a very knowledgeable man. But um, yeah, I'd never heard of it. But but once once you start to understand what it is, uh, and it's it's everywhere. I mean, it, you can see it coursing through everything from from local policy decisions all the way to global events it's 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 remarkable really um so you know we i think that we often hear people talk about it so if we the world economic forum that obviously they got this strategic partnership with the with the united nations to quote unquote accelerate the the implementation of 20 of the 2030 agenda but accelerate can mean, in a business sense, um, if you the, the organisation of economic cooperation and development just say that business accelerators speed up the process of business creation. So that is in one sense the term acceleration can be used. So if we move on and, and, and look at some of the quotes from people like Kwasi Kwarteng when he was speaking the other day um, and talking about the, the launch of the growth plan, uh, he repeatedly used the term, you know, uh, we are publishing a list of infrastructure projects that will prioritise ex accelerator. 
uh, I, I could announce that we will be accelerating reforms. We will liberate planning rules and specified agreements, releasing land and accelerating development. And he used this term quite a, quite a lot during that speech. Again, it could just mean this business, this accelerating investment in business. That's that's what it could mean. But then when we see quotes from people like Joe Davis, who's the chief economist at the at, um, Vanguard, um, it's used in a slightly different context. He's sort of saying uh, the pandemic function call um, as a call option. So it's a call option on employers to increment. So no longer could we work from home arrangements, serve as controlled experiment in productivity. They become indispensable. So suddenly there's this there's this notion of acceleration kind of compelling change. And that is very much what accelerationism is about. So if we go go on to look at um, the, the numerous accelerators that there are around the world. So we got the, the World Health Organization has got its access to COVID-19 tools accelerator. The European Union has got its local energy accelerator and so forth. The, the UK has got numerous accelerators. Um, and again, you might think that this is all based on just the idea of, of rapid investment and development in the business sense. However, there is definitely an ideology underpinning that that term. So we have to ask, is, is that underpinning the use of this term? And that was uh, some, uh, uh, there was a good article in the, in the Guardian about this. Um, so acceleration, how the French philosophy predicted the future that we live in. And it certainly does, because if you look at the explanation um, that is given for acceleration, Mike, if you, my text is very small. If you wouldn't mind reading out that. Um, that well, it quote. says there, accelerationists argue that technology, particularly computer technology and capitalism, particularly the most aggressive global variety, should be massively sped up and intensified. Accelerationists uh, favor automation. They favor the further merging of the digital and the human. They often favor the deregulation of business and drastically scaled back government. The, they, but although you could say that there's many more people than accelerationists that, that feel that, uh, they believe that uh, people which should stop deluding themselves that economic and technological progress can be controlled. Uh, they often believe that social and political upheaval has a value in itself. Accelerationism, therefore, uh, goes against conservatism, traditional socialism, social democracy, environmentalism, protectionism, populism, nationalism, localism, and all other ideologies. Yeah, uh, so it's this, 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 the idea of this is this deconstruction idea of, of creating, creating uh, uh, problems that then require an immediate solution. So that has got on the there's there's two wings of accelerationism. There's the right wing and the left wing. If we look at the right wing, um, they, that, that comes from a, a, center, a place called the CCRU, which was a, a, a department, a, think, a kind of think project rather than a think tank within Warwick University, led by a guy called Nick Land. Now, he came up with something called the Dark Enlightenment, which was like his, his accelerationist manifesto. So, and that was very much based upon, <clears throat> excuse me, um, the art, an article that was put out. So we got other people around the world, people like Peter Thiel from Palantir Infamy, um, uh, PayPal, early investor in Facebook and so forth, who's very much involved with the, with the uh, Steve Bannon and, and the Trump kind of camp. 
um, he put out an article saying that basically that the, the impetus was upon us to upon them, you know, the accelerationists because politics had failed and everything had crashed down uh, to to get out of of politics entirely. And this is the theory. So Land picked this up and created this thing called the Dark Enlightenment. And it's based on these principles that the world faces annihilation. Democracy is on an inexorable path to a new dark age. It is morally bankrupt and all consuming and therefore self-consuming. We have no choice. And this comes up all the time. Something must be done. We must react. It, the, and they, therefore they call themselves neo-reactionaries. We should exploit Schumpeter's creative destruction. So Schumpeter in 1942 talking about his idea of, of this economic idea of economic dynamism that 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 you could use destruction creative destruction to to as a catalyst for change for necessary change he argued so this but but they take this to the extreme the dark enlightenment takes this to the extreme so to speed up the demo because their problem they see democracy is morally bankrupt so to speed up the demise of democracy is needed um, and, and then there's the left wing version of accelerationism. Um, and that's, that's got very many similar attributes. The, the, a guy called Nick Cernicek and another guy called Alex Williams wrote this accelerationist manifesto. And that was that followed the Dark Enlightenment. So the Dark Enlightenment was in 2012. And then a year later, this Accelerate Manifesto came out. And again, it's got the these same same concepts within it. The world faces annihilation. But for them, it's not the corruption of democracy and moral decay, which is what the right believes. It's the climate disaster. So we again, we cannot wait. We must act now. This imperative to act all the time without thinking, I would say, a total infrastructural, ideological, social and economic transformation. Uh, we must use, again, Schumpeter's creative destruction, same kind of idea presented, to create what they were calling a socio-technical hegemony. So this, this, which some people might call technocracy, for example. Um, automation and digital technology replaces employment, People live in some sort of universal basic income because there's no work, because because AI and technology has made people without any labor unemployed. Um, but they, they argue that therefore there's no class structure. Everyone lives in this kind of mono, mono kind of urban mono class. There's no there's no scarcity. This kind of what what people like Paul Mason called a socialist utopia. So if we think about those two different ideas, those two concepts of this accelerationist, accelerationist concept, it's everywhere, isn't it? I mean, I, I would I would argue that this is pretty much what we are seeing all the time. These this constant crisis, this perpetual, this perpetual destabilization and deconstruction of everything, which leads to the necessary change, you might say, maybe a great reset, even or something like that. Um, and and then this comes up with people like the World Economic Forum. So the World Economic Forum, in an article they put out, "My Carbon and the Approach for Inclusive and Sustainable Cities," openly stated that COVID nineteen was a test of social responsibility. 
So this this cat this this terrible event happens, but we can use that. We can use that as a catalyst for changing things. So that so, but both of these um, both of these ideologies look, look are trying to create a post-capitalist utopia of some sort. For the right, that's a thing called GovCore, which is I would argue looks very much like stakeholder capitalism. And for the left, it's this socio-technical hegemony which looks like technocracy. So they, the, the right, the, in Nick, Nick Land's dark enlightenment, he calls this, this uber kind of, kind of existing power, the cathedral. But what's, but what's happening at the moment is that in their theory, the cathedral gets pulled apart by cataclysm. Well, that's not happening. The cathedral, taking his claims, the cathedral is thriving on cataclysm and breakdown and destruction. So neither neither the left nor the right in are gonna get what they want out of their theories of accelerationism because it's being used, I would argue, by the globalists to pick and choose the aspects of it that suit them at any one time. And and it and if you look at the way that the world events are unfolding and the way and the and the events over the last two years you know you have to say that this looks like the kind of the kind of potential ideological underpinning of all that yes indeed uh, well if anybody wants uh, to find out more about this uh, Ian has published uh, we've published one of Ian's articles on the UK, it's on the front page of the UK column website at the moment uh, towards the dark enlightenment uh, do read that and share it because uh, it is uh, extremely interesting. Now, I just want to uh, uh, jump through uh, here a little bit and uh, come back to Vanessa uh, and get an update from you, Vanessa, please, on the uh, situation with the with the observers that went to visit uh, the Donbass last week for the referenda. Yeah, um, so the, um, the discrimination against the um, independent, uh, the international independent observers who went, um, many of them independently with their own resources because they were interested to find out more, um, like this German energy giant boss who was um, sacked, as the headline says, for being honest, managing director of the German energy company EWF, Stefan Schaller, decided to personally get acquainted with the situation in the Donbass and attend the referendum taking place. Subsequently, he praised the local authorities in Donbass for the good organization of the voting and for his honesty in exposing the EU claims that the referendum uh, is a sham. It looks like he will lose his position. He now has lost his position as, as chief executive officer of the energy giant. Um, and he stated publicly that this was purely a personal initiative. He took a vacation for this, so it wasn't on um, work time. Shala explained, later, having seen everything personally, he praised the organization of the voting on Russian television, a mortal sin as it appears. So, as I said, the persecution of the international observers continues. Um, what I wanted to show, Mike, we may not have time to see all of it, but just also to demonstrate to people, there was another uh, German politician um, who actually accompanied me to Donetsk, um, Christoph Horstel, who has his own political party, in Germany, um, who is totally on board with um, the COVID hoax and 
all of the um, applied measures being brought in by the WEF and the Great Reset. Um, he published uh, this video on his um, various channels, and he what he's basically doing is he's paying for a plane to fly various banners over the skies of Berlin at various times. I think, actually, no, I'm not supposed to say that um, because that's a secret. The next one he's doing, you'll know about it when it happens. Um, this one is basically calling for Nord Stream to be opened, not by Russia, of course, um, but by um, the NATO member states. So I don't know if we can see just a few minutes of this because I think why it's important is to show that there are movements in Germany and across Europe that are now starting to really push back um, against uh, the NATO war in Ukraine and also against the Great Reset, etc. Germany's economy is collapsing because our historically highly corrupt government policy is more afraid of Washington's deep state than of its own people. We are so undecided, so limp, so powerless that we let ourselves be ruined after the murderous Corona circus. The world looks on in horror. But that's unfortunately not all. In truth, the aggressive West has long since been preparing for World War III. The crash is only preparation for the great showdown and multi-million deaths. And Putin in Moscow, the Russian people, are facing the next great patriotic war. Do we really want to do this to ourselves for the third time against Russia in over 100 years and this time guaranteed to lose and this is the last choice we get either we get rid of the government or the government gets rid of us let's go we still have something to lose and spring will be broke how long do we want to wait until we die our mass in the hail of bombs in the end under nuclear bombs we have to stick together all of us. It's about bare survival. We are the new center. We go all the way back to reason. You go ahead. Um, and I think the only other point that I wanted to make, um, obviously the MEP Natalie Loiseau is still pursuing me um, individually, which is an abuse of her power to wage a vendetta against me because of my previous work exposing her role um, in the chemical weapon sham in Syria. But also um, what has come to light, not recently, but it's sort of been um, joined into my case, was her role effectively in covering up not only embezzlement um, within the uh, foreign office um, core in uh, Benin in Africa, but also the attempted murder of a um, whistleblower who was exposing the corruption and embezzlement in um, the foreign office there. Um, and uh, Francoise and Nicolas has been waging this battle against 
Natalie Loiseau, who effectively was in charge of human resources at the time that her case came to light. Um, so Natalie Loiseau's, uh, let's say, roots in corruption and protection um, of the neo-colonialist agenda of her own government go back a long way. Um, I would really like to say thank you to everyone that reached out to ask what, there is, what it is they can do to help. Um, there is an email address for Joseph Borrell, um, who Natalie Loiseau addressed with her letter calling for sanctions, personal sanctions against me and sanctions against all the international observers. I would urge people to write and express your dismay at this clear abuse of power and attempt to effectively lead a fascist censorship campaign against uh, diverging views and dissenting voices. Um, the more letters that he receives, we may actually be able to do something to prevent um, this um, sanctioning going ahead. So, you know, when, when you think you can't do anything, you can. If Joseph Borrell receives a thousand letters, two thousand letters, doesn't have to be long, but just expressing your disgust at the potential um, persecution of people who went with best intentions to observe a referendum that the UN and the OCSE refused to do. So they reneged, they, 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 they um, derelicted on their duty. We filled uh, their roles and now we're being um, punished for it. Yeah. So okay. thank you to everyone who um, sent messages of support, but please don't stop there. Please actually take some action to prevent this happening, not only for myself, but for everyone who is being um, basically punished for doing what they think is right. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Vanessa. Right. I uh, just want to very briefly mention the online safety bill. Uh, there's been an update on, on that because uh, the government has published the uh, latest uh, amendments. Um, and this is at committee stage still, but it is progressing through Parliament. Uh, but I just wanted to highlight the fact that uh, uh, Lord Sumption has published more on this. Uh, government control over the flow of information. Lord Sumption speaks out against the online safety bill in the latest episode of Law Pod, Pod UK. So this is a podcast. Uh, I do uh, recommend that people listen to it because, uh, you know, he is once again focusing on this issue of legal uh, but uh, harmful, this uh, concept within the online safety bill that uh, if uh, information is uh, viewed as being harmful, but is still legal information um, that uh, it can be somehow censor censored. Um, and Patrick, uh, let's just come back to the Ukraine very briefly and, and fake news here uh, from the uh, Ukraine Defense Ministry. Yeah, they, they tweeted this uh, image out here. Let's uh, scroll that image there. So this is a box of uh, teeth with gold crowns on them. And uh, they're saying the Russians have been prying these off Ukrainians out of their mouths uh, and collecting them to, to melt the gold down, I guess. So uh, obviously this evokes uh, uh, emotive images of the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. Um, if only it was true, Mike, if only it was true, and it didn't take long, a few hours before the, uh, the gentleman whose tooth collection that actually belongs to, turns out he's a dentist, his name's Sergei. A local dentist there in this uh, Ukrainian uh, town. Uh, oh God, they belonged to the people I've treated all these years. I pulled out these teeth because they were bad. 
so he's saying, they're mine. These are my teeth. So that was a very quick sort of uh, uh, debunking of some fake news. And I'm going to tell you, there's so many of these stories on a daily basis that are coming out. They're being pushed out either by uh, the Ukrainian uh, various ministries um, or by the uh, Western mainstream press. And the Western press will immediately run with anything on the Twitter account of uh, any of these people from the RADA or any of these ministries under the uh, Zelensky. Can I use the term regime? Is that offensive? The, the Zelensky regime. Um, so I thought that was interesting. It's just an example of the sort of the, the type of fake news that's coming out on a daily basis and completely unchecked by the so-called fact checkers um, in, in the West. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, uh, Patrick, I'd just like to end with uh, with this from AP. Uh, and you wanted to talk about the uh, the situation with Alex Jones and the uh, trial. So he's he's um, there's a defamation trial that's uh, being held in in Texas here, and I think this is really important, especially for us uh, in the independent media, uh, to understand exactly what's going on here. So um, they're going to rule on this, and so. There's a few questions that the jury's going to have to consider here, and one of them, in terms of the defense, um, uh, Alex Jones's legal team, obviously making a First Amendment uh, defense here, could the jury decide what Jones did is protected by the First Amendment? And in this type of a trial, in this case, uh, the answer is no. The judge has already ruled that Jones is liable for defamation inflicted of emotional distress, invasion of privacy, violating Connecticut's unfair trade practices laws, et cetera. The jury's job is to decide how much money he owes for harming the people who sued him over his lies. That's uh, directly from Associated Press. So th this is an important uh, trial here. You know, Alex Jones is being kind of publicly uh, canceled here on a level that few people have ever experienced uh, in the United States. And Alex Jones actually is not on trial here. What's really on trial here is the First Amendment and freedom of speech. Because if the, you know, if the speech is ridiculous, if it's outlandish, if it's that person's opinion um, about what they think happened at a certain event or a certain incident, um, you know, it might be right, it might be wrong, but that's not the point. The speech itself should be protected, is protected under the U.S. Constitution, under the First Amendment. So now this is beginning to be repealed. And this is an important precedent case, because if this is allowed to go through, and this is the, basically the new standard, because again, it's down to the judge and how they actually interpret. No doubt there's going to be an appeal here to, uh, of some sort, and there's other cases that are ongoing on this same topic. Um, but it's, you know, it doesn't leave a lot of uh, room for uh, freedom of speech or the First Amendment in the United States. Obviously, our rights are delineated um, in the Constitution and writing, not, this, not the same in Britain. But I think this, the, the precedent and the standard is going to be set. What, and you have to look, you know, what caused all the speculation to begin with is because the federal government took over the case and basically sealed any public access to any of the evidence or anything for over a year after the actual incident took place at Sandy Hook um, on in December of 2012, okay? So during that time when everything was sealed and they wouldn't release any information to the public about the biggest uh, mass shooting, as it were, 
um, this horrific uh, major event, um, that's when all the speculation filled the vacuum of information. And there are people who did more, much more uh, wild um, uh, takes on Sandy Hook than Alex Jones did, okay? But he is the biggest. So they're targeting the person with the biggest platform, the most politically consequential and active and influential person in the kind of arguably in the alternative media outlet in terms of helping the last U.S. president um, previous to Biden get elected, um, that sort of thing. He's now become a political target. So if it wasn't for the federal government sealing that case and making it a federal case, which is a local uh, homicide uh, case, became a federal case, even though there was no interstate uh, activity uh, going on here, they've sealed it. That's when the speculation mushroomed and went out of controls, some would say. And then under public pressure, the, the law enforcement then uh, basically uh, relented and started releasing drip feeding information out in 20 uh after 2013 but it took public pressure from a lot of different people journalists even alternative media people to get the government to start releasing information about this secretive uh uh crime scene so that and that's my my take on that is a little more nuanced granted than what you're going to see um in in the media coverage on this but i think that needs to be said this is important. So again, this isn't just about the wild Alex Jones here. This is yeah. about the First Amendment. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, just very, you know, in one word, uh, is this could this go all the way to the Supreme Court? Um, there's there, there's always a potential um, of the, the, the circuit court and of appeals, Supreme Court, the state, the state court. It will have some latitude there, but it's a defamation case. So I don't know what the actual ins and outs are legally, but um, I think this is a civil case. So again, this kind of in some ways sits outside of that other process. If okay. it was a state prosecution, I think, or something that like came from the DA, I'm not, I'm not sure what the, what, what the grounds or the latitude for appeal is, but um, certainly this is something that shouldn't end here with yeah. this particular judgment. It shouldn't end here. And I, and I hope it doesn't. Okay. Okay. Well, unfortunately, we yeah, well, indeed. Uh, unfortunately, uh, we're out of time. Uh, we will be back in a few minutes, of course, uh, for some extra for uh, anybody on the UK column stream. Um, uh, but otherwise, we will see you 1pm as usual on Monday. I hope everyone has a great weekend. Uh, thanks for joining us and see you then.